You can open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. If you've been part of the Four Oaks family for any amount of time, you know that although my wife and I have been here for, gosh, in Tallahassee, almost 25 years, this is home. This is where all of our kids have been born and raised. We originally from Tennessee. I grew up, in fact, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, affectionately known as God's country. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. And my family back in the 70s, we were connected, got connected to a Bible teaching ministry called Reach Out. And, and Reach Out was, um, was founded by this young, energetic Bible teacher named Kay Arthur. And, and if you recognize her name, that Reach Out Ministries later became Preset Ministries. In fact, we use, um, over the years, have used much of Kay's materials in our women's Bible studies. Just awesome, great stuff. But I still remember when I was 12 years old, we would drive out to, to reach out, as it was known at the time. Adults would, would go into this one building, and then all the kids would go into um, the barn. And, and, the, and, the, and the adults would be doing precept upon precept through a book of the Bible, and the kids would be doing something called line upon line through the same book. And I remember the very first book I ever studied in the Bible was, in fact, Genesis. And I remember getting all of our color-coded pens and marking up our, our Bibles. And, and I remember to this day, I, I don't know if I still have the notes, I, I hope I do, but I remember all the different issues that even then were sort of hot-button issues from the book of Genesis, all the things that we talked about and debated and engaged on, things like age of the earth and the flood and dinosaurs and what does it mean when it says in the days of Peleg the, the continents were divided and the ice age and how could humans live to be 900 years old? And if you've ever studied the book of Genesis, those might be some of the burning questions that, that you've wrestled with as well. Now let me say this, as, as incredibly thankful as I am for that season in my life where I learned to study the Bible and, and dug into God's Word and God developed a love for His Word in my heart, I think oftentimes, and, and this might be the case for you too, we, we were dangerously close to really missing the whole point of the book. See, Moses is writing for not primarily to answer all of those questions and issues that I just mentioned. I mean, some that they touch on, and we're going we're to get into all that, but that's not primarily why Moses is writing. Israel has left the land of Egypt. And remember, there was no written word of God. The only way that God's word, his message, his voice, his instruction came to the people was through the patriarchs or through an individual or through Moses. And here the Israelites have been living in like, pagan country for 400 years. They are surrounded by the big bully on the block, which is Egypt. And remember, in, in Egypt, there was a God for everything. There was a God of the sun and a God of the moon and a God of the stars and the seas and the Nile and the crops and fertility. And, and everything sort of evolved around this pagan mythology. And it was sort of the human's job to discern the will of the gods, and, and, and that could happen through sacrifice or some sort of ritual because, you see, the gods were unpredictable. They were capricious. They were arbitrary. And there was always this, this sort of, the air they breathed was one where there was a constant bargaining with the gods 
in order to sort of get what you want and to keep them at bay. And here, and as we saw this last week, Moses is writing right into the middle of that cauldron of chaos and theological confusion. And he gives us four words right at the beginning of Genesis that change everything. In the beginning, hard comma, God. It's, it's Moses' way of, of right off the bat, right out of the chute saying, I'm here to tell you about not a God. I'm here to tell you about the God, the eternal God who has always been, who is, who always will be, who didn't, who didn't come from nothing because he created everything that is. He's always been here. And for the Israelites, this means, this meant understanding, this is, God is not some tribal deity. God is not a God who brooks any rivals. For us, we have to remember, let's put it into contemporary language, God is not a God who can be confined to the private sphere. God is not a God who is content to live on the periphery of your life or of my life. He is the God who is there, period. Interesting in this first chapter of Genesis, the word God, Elohim, which means transcendent God, mentioned almost 30 times. And that shouldn't surprise us because fundamentally, whose story is this? This is God's story. And Moses, upon announcing that in the beginning God now turns to tell us about God's opening act in human history. We're going to be in this chapter for, for a few weeks. But I'm going to read, read most of it this morning for us. I'm going to invite you to stand. It's a, it's a longer passage, but I think you'll be blessed by it. I just encourage you, as we're reading a very familiar text that you put yourself back in the shoes of the people who first read it, seeing the pantheon of gods and idolatry all around them, and thinking about the one living true God who is. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. 
And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. Finally, and God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what we most desperately need this morning, whether we realize it or not, is to see you. We need to see you for who you are. Lord, we, we, we need to be reawakened to the reality that you are at the center of the universe. You are at the center of human reality and human history. And Lord, you are at the center of our lives. And Lord, we want to align ourselves with that because we know that's where the life of flourishing happens, in communion, in relationship to you. So Lord, do that for us this morning, we pray in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. Pastor John Piper, when he was pastoring at Bethlehem Baptist Church 10 or 20 years ago, he shares this story. He was preaching in Isaiah chapter 6. It's a very famous passage where Isaiah is, is gathered before the throne room of God and the cherubim and seraphim are flying around singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Dr. Piper um, resolved that as a part of this message, he was going to do something a little different. There was going to be no, no application, okay? no nifty stories, no illustrations, just the pure, unadulterated Word of God. He, he just wanted the reality of the sovereign God reigning on his throne in the universe to ring loud and clear, and he was a little anxious as to how this would go. So after the, the service, a couple came up to him, and this was a couple that was undergoing some deep grief, some deep suffering. They'd either lost a child or had a child with some kind of terminal diagnosis, and they proceeded to tell Dr. Piper that this, in fact, was maybe the, the most encouraging message that they had ever heard. And as he queried them and asked them what was sort of behind that assessment, they said, we just don't know how we could have walked through this trial, this difficult trial where, where our questions aren't answered and nothing makes complete sense, it would be so difficult, though, to walk through this trial and not know that there was not a sovereign God on his throne in total control. 
who was intimately involved in every detail of our lives. That this was not random stance. This was not happenstance. This was not, this was not an accident. This was something that, that, that was sort of out of God's purview, out of his, out of his power. And they were incredibly comforted. Well, let me draw a comparison um, to, to where I think we're going this morning. Um, first of all, I'm, I'm no John Piper. Um, he has more hair than I do. And I've got him on height. Okay, just he's a wee, he's a wee man. Um, but, but amazing, amazing man of God. But th- this sermon is similar in that it's not a typical sermon in the sense that um, we're, we're addressing some high-level issues. You see, we, we, a lot of us have so much baggage coming into the book of Genesis. We need to do a little excavation, a little groundwork, foundation building to sort of set the stage for, for how we are to best understand and read um, this very, let's be honest, complex and controversial chapter. And so there's, there's, there's going to be some technical information. There's going to be some background information um, where it's not a lot of application per se, except this. As we, as we walk through some of this material, as we do draw some things from Genesis 1, I want to encourage you to just see just the hand of God, the presence of God, the reality of God that is just wed all through this text. Just suspend your questions for a moment and ask God to help you see him for who he truly is and let that be sort of an overlay, a template you can just sort of lay on top of your life. That's what I pray God does for us this morning. So there's three parts to this sermon, and, and here they are. The first, we're going to talk about the creation days, ways that faithful Christians, Orthodox Christians, have read and understood sort of what I would call the process of creation. We're going to just briefly address that. Second, I'm going to make some comments about the Bible and science and you are going to suspend the temptation to try to text me or email me in the middle of the sermon. Okay, you'll wait at least, at least till afterwards, right? And then third, we are going to draw some central truths from Genesis 1, things that we want to plant our flag in and say, you know what, these are our non-negotiables. This is where we are hanging our hat. This is what we are basing our life on. Now, because we can't say everything, and this this sermon no doubt will generate for many of you maybe even more questions than you had coming in. Some of you like didn't know you had questions and you're going to leave today and say, I've got questions. Okay, congratulations. We have an opportunity coming up. This is going to be a joint cooperative effort between our East, Midtown, and Killarne congregations. Um, we are going on Wednesday night, May 8th, to have a symposium here called Creation and Science. May 8th, 7 p.m. is going to be in this auditorium. Um, this is where you bring it, okay? This is where if you want to wear your dinosaur costume or whatever, what, whatever is just like gets you in, in, in the spirit, this, we're going to engage, we're going to ask questions, we're going to do some debate. That's where that is best handled. But for now, I'm just going to make some general comments as we walk through. Now, in your, in your booklet, and by the way, we, we provide booklets for you, these sermon booklets to use in your quiet times, take notes, 
some articles. You can use them in your, your community groups. Um, I'm going to mention a couple of things that are actually in your book. And this, this particular one, you don't have to turn there. We're, we're going to flash it on the screen. On page 9, in, on, the, on the second lesson, where it kind of lists out what we would kind of call the four most common or popular views about the way that we're to understand these seven days of creation. And, and let me just highlight them and say just a couple of things about each one of them just to sort of, sort of orient you. The, the first position is that, and this is probably the, the traditional um, interpretation, it's the historical one, uh, most common one, that these in fact are six literal days, solar days, 24-hour day periods of time in which God did his creating. It's the most straightforward um, oftentimes, not, not always, but oftentimes people who um, adopt this particular position are apt to, to think about the age of the earth in thousands of years versus millions or, or billions of years. Now, these next three options, and by the way, that, that, I'm just taking a guess, that's probably where, where most of you, at least that's what you were exposed to, that's the way you were, you were taught or raised Probably over the last hundred years or so, um, faithful Christians, biblical Christians who take the Word of God very seriously, have just begun to ask questions such as, does the text demand that we read it that way? In light of scientific discovery and other sorts of things that press forward the issue of the age of the earth, does it have to be read this way? And there's, there's three kind of positions and faithful Christians have that, that address that issue. One, you'll see there, is called the day-age theory. It just means that God, the, these days are real, but they're not days like our days. They, they are long, long, long periods of time symbolized by the day. And oftentimes this is adopted by people who maintain kind of because of scientific evidence and otherwise a very old age for the earth. So that's day-age. The framework view just says it's all symbolism, okay? It's all symbolism, that, that the way this is sort of put together, Moses, God's using a framework that we all understand. We all understand the, the issue of days and time and predictability, that this is just a, a, an interpretive grid, so to speak, um, to understand what's happening in creation, that Moses' purpose here is primarily theological, and so people who adopt this position are going to be more likely to say there's not necessarily a sequence of events here. This is all um, sort of poetry, so to speak. Finally, there is the analogy view, and, this, and this, this is what this means. Now, people who believe in the analogy view believe that there are six days, they are chronological, but you, it's hard to be able to extrapolate and say God was... God's day is the same as our day. Like, it's similar, but it's not identical. You know, how, do, how, do, how, do we, how are we to think about God, who is the author of time, um, creating in the same way? So, so this position just says it's analogous. It's kind of an analogy for us to use. Because let me just say this, okay? And, and all of you are thinking, like, what do you believe, Pastor Paul? I'm not going to tell you. No, that's, that's not fair. I'll, I'll tell you in a second. All of these... This is going to be hard for some of you to like to swallow, okay? Let's get ready. Are responsible interpretations, I believe, by 
evangelical orthodox Christians. John Calvin believed in a literal six days. Augustine, who was the greatest theologian in the 